Father, like Son. Today, this morning, we will look at uh, part one of this, uh, this topic. In the Bible reading, you would have seen that there's a lot of red letters, according to my Bible anyway. It's all the Word of God, obviously, but we have a long discourse of the words of Jesus from John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. And then next week, we'll follow with the following passage. We have mentioned previously that the great question in John's Gospel is, who is Jesus? We have looked at some of the stories, interactions and miracles that John has selected out of the many possible things that he could have spoken about. He has selected some of them of the life of Christ in order to address this question. For the last 2,000 years, the world has been asking the same important question. Just who is Jesus? What kind of man was he? What kind of claims did he make? Is he God? Is he worthy of worship? And some of these claims, as you know, are very much challenged today, more than ever. So it is important for believers to be thoroughly grounded in the truth because this truth is being challenged. So many different fronts. So we have to be sure of what we believe. We have before us this morning one of the great texts in the Gospel of John and indeed of the entire New Testament as to the person of Jesus. The truths set down here are the very foundation of the Gospel and of our faith. They are words that our Lord indicates we should pay special attention to. Regarding this passage before us, Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was around in the 1800s, he said, and I quote, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. End of quote. So it's important stuff. So let's uh, get to it. Verses 16 to 18, so he starts. So it starts. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried to kill him even more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, last week, if you recall, we looked, well, we looked at the story of the healing of the, the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. He was unable to go to the waters by himself. Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well. 
out of all of the people who were lying there waiting for the waters to be moved, Jesus goes to this one and after Jesus asked him the question, he started going on and giving an excuse as to why he was there in that condition. And before he even finished, he told him to pick up his mat and walk. And sure enough, picked up his mat and walked. Somewhere along the way, however, the significance of this unbelievable miracle of this person who had been lying there for 38 years, somewhere along the way, the whole thing was lost on the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the scribes. Why? Because this miracle was done on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders did not go after the man who was healed because apparently, according to their laws, you weren't able to carry your mat. It was considered work. Not according to the Old Testament law, but according to the rabbinic laws. Even though this is the guy who was carrying the mat, but they begin to persecute Jesus. No one was better at in the art of legalism than the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. No one was keen to observe every letter of the law and not just the Old Testament law, but their own interpretations. And there was hundreds and hundreds of these interpretations of the law of Moses that they were also trying to keep. They had formulas for everything. So in this day and age, when somebody comes to to you and says, well, why is such and such a person going to heaven? Because apparently everybody's going to heaven. So why are they going to heaven? Oh, because they were good people. If anybody deserved to go to heaven, it will be the Pharisees and the scribes because they did everything that was supposed to be good. They followed every law that was out there. Everything. So if there was anybody who was going to get to heaven because they were good, it was going to be the Pharisees and the scribes. But if the best within Judaism could not merit entrance into heaven, neither can you or I. I don't care what people think. I don't care how good the life has been. I don't care what the opinions of people are. Because legalism seeks seeks to win God's heaven by by keeping some code of conduct. And if the scribes and Pharisees fail, then what hope do you and I have? Remember that the Sabbath... The Sabbath, its original intention is that it was God's gift to man to have a rest, to take it easy, to rest from their labours. But they had transformed it into 
a prison of rules and regulations and restrictions. On the very day that they were supposed to be set free from the normal, everyday burdens of life, a day that was to be set aside suddenly was, was burdened with all these regulations and things and say, well, what's the fun in that? Our Lord, when he came, he never set aside the Old Testament scriptures. He fulfilled every one of them perfectly. It's all the other stuff that the rabbinics, the the rabbis and everybody else had heaped upon the Old Testament that he wasn't too impressed about, but he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. He completely lived out everything according to the requirements of the law. Now let's remember what happened to the healing of the son of the, uh, of the royal of the royal official. It was accomplished in a way that left most of the crowd in the dark because the official's family were in, where were they? Northern Sea of Galilee. Remember the, the town where Jesus grew up, or the town that Jesus lived? Sorry? Capernaum? Is that what you said? No, no, that's what I heard. Okay. Capernaum, correct. <laughs> So the, the Capernaum is the, you know, where Jesus grew up, the northern village, fishing town, or all of that. So this is where this official came from, and Jesus was back in Cana, where you written. So this official went all the way over there, and Jesus, by remote control, heals this person, right? He wasn't there, he just says, he's healed, bang, he was healed. Pretty good, eh? So the crowd that was with Jesus, they probably didn't have no idea of the end result, what happened over there. We know that the officials in this whole household were, became believers because of the miracles. They checked the time that it happened and it was Jesus' words and bang on. They believed. But the rest of the crowd, they would be none the wiser. There was no Facebook, no social media, nothing. So news didn't travel all that far. It was all just pretty much contained, this miracle. But here, here, the healing of this paralysed man at the pool of Bethesda is different. It draws considerable attention to Jesus. And it's no accident. Our Lord, he selects this paralytic person to be healed. He knew how long he had suffered and how he and others, he knew Jesus, knew exactly how everybody else was going to respond to the healing. If if Jesus wanted to avoid controversy, he could have healed this person any other day of the week. He wasn't going anywhere. No, he chose to heal on the Sabbath. Why? Why? to rattle the cage of the enemy and to declare that he is the Lord 
of the Sabbath. Sure as eggs, the Jewish authority loses interest in the miraculous healing of the paralyzed man and now they press their attack against Jesus. And we could say that the persecution of Jesus, which ends in Calvary, started here. And then it's all the way, all the way to Calvary from this point on. So it starts. And when Jesus responds and says, he calls the Father, he calls him my Father instead of our Father, he calls him my Father, they recognise straight away that this was a claim on Jesus' part to be the, the Son of God. This, he was claiming this unique relationship to God and then he's claiming to share the exclusive prerogatives of God himself. He was making himself nothing more, nothing less than equal with God. And it is evident that the Jews were increasingly concerned by the way Jesus speaks and acts. Jesus is acting like God, like the Father. Jesus works on the Sabbath just as the Father is working, I am working. So when people say that Jesus didn't make any, never claimed in the Gospels that he was God, well, this is the passage you need to look to. It's right there. Writer George MacDonald gives another insight into this verse, verse 17, and gives an insight into the Lord's miracles. And this is what he says. He says, Jesus did instantly what the Father is doing slowly. For example, in nature the Father is slowly turning water into wine. Well, how does that happen? Well, okay, let's go. Let's explain. Water falls from the heavens, gets into the roots, the the fluids run up the, the roots to the plants, to the grapes. You know, that's the process, right? And then they pick the grapes, they fermentation, all of this. So this whole process takes a while. But Jesus did it instantly. What well, takes a process of time? And then he says, McDonald says, through the powers of nature, the Father is slowly healing broken bodies. but Jesus healed them immediately. Nature is repeatedly multiplying bread while producing the wheat from the rain and the ground and the seed and the bread. Nature is repeatedly multiplying bread from sowing to harvest, but Jesus multiplied it instantly in his own own hands. So the whole... The Lord of creation shortens the process and it happens, bang, straight away. This is God. Only God can do that. So let's look at his claims from verses 19 to 23. 
Jesus gave them his answer, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son. That all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. Some 20 times in the Gospel of John we have this, this formula. Um, here it's very truly, I tell you, in another version of the Bible it will say verily, verily. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Yeah. Jesus is, is telling us, when you hear that, when you see those words, he's telling us, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. This is really important stuff here. And Jesus goes on to say that everything he does, everything he he says, everything that he knows, all his wisdom comes from the fact that he has been in the very presence of his father. He's, he's basically saying, let me tell you how equal with God I really am. Forget about all this healing on the Sabbath day, that's not even half of it. My father and I are always at work. All I am doing is imitating my father. Today we would say, like father, like son. And again, one of the things that worries me is that on social media you see Statements like Jesus never claimed to be God. How untrue. The Jewish leaders certainly understood his claims. Jesus acts like God, talks as if he is God. In fact, he defends his God-like action. Jesus claims to be God. And, and, And soon how seriously they take these words because soon they increase his charges from breaking the Sabbath to, to blasphemy for claiming to be God. They knew what he was saying. And the penalty for blasphemy was what? It was death. It was death. And Jesus is defending himself against charges, these charges that will eventually cost him his life. Any other person in such circumstances would be terrified and would backtrack, eager to defend themselves in, in some way trying to appease the, the detractors. No, that, I know that's what you heard, but that's not what I meant. Oh, no, no, you took my words out of context. Have you heard that one? Jesus does none of that. He just says it like it is. In black and white. He was stating 
the facts, telling the truth, stating the facts. This is the way it is. Don't need to apologise. He's not the head of McDonald's Corporation hearing complaints and trying to win back customers in a tough market. You know, yeah, yeah, I'll hear your complaints. Yeah, yeah, we'll hear the feedback and, and if you don't like it, we'll, 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 we'll change it. You know? Because customers come first. No, not with God. Customers do not come first. God comes first. God is not out there trying to win a popularity contest. He's not out there checking the polls on what people think, on who's believing and, oh, we're going to increase, we're going to up the percentage, the polls and all of that. He's not seeking to save himself. He doesn't have to. He's laying out his case so that his words and actions will be correctly understood. As bold a claim as anybody has ever made on this earth. Him being in very nature God. No ifs, no buts, but God. What does this mean? What it means in verses 24 to 30. Very truly, again that formula, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Again, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come means it is right here, right now, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Again we have those words that confirm that Jesus, what Jesus is about to tell us is very, very important. Just how is it possible that Jesus can give eternal life to those who simply believe in him and judge those who reject him, who don't believe in him? How is it possible? This is possible because of Jesus' intimate relationship with God the Father. Again, Jesus not only claimed to be equal with with the Father, but also claimed to have authority from the Father to raise the dead. He tells of the future, he foretells 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus makes it clear that a time is coming when he will raise all the dead from the grave. This is because the dead include not only those who are saved, but also those who are not. And I want you to listen very, very carefully here. When somebody dies, we usually say, rest in peace, R.I.P. Is that wishful thinking? Or is it an accurate description that they are forever at peace now? Well, according to these words, it's not entirely accurate when we say rest in peace. It's wishful thinking. Let's look at this passage and we're going to look at four different resurrections that Jesus is talking about here. And I got this from Warren Weasby on his commentary on the Gospel of John. He says, he says, first of all is the resurrection of the lost sinner to eternal life, verses 24 to 25. First thing, so the first resurrection is the resurrection of the lost sinner to eternal life. No matter, you see, because no matter how an undertaker prepares a dead body, a corpse, it is still dead. You can dress it up, you can put all the makeup you want and everything else, it is still dead. The lost sinner is as dead as a corpse. Doesn't matter how you dress it up. Doesn't matter how fit or beautiful, doesn't matter how much money and everything else, it's, it's lost sinner is helpless as a corpse. But a time is coming, Jesus says, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. When the gospel is preached, when when they hear the word of salvation, what God has done, they are raised to life by hearing God's word, by believing in the Son. That is what salvation is all about. So the first resurrection is from the sinner from death to eternal life. The first one. The second resurrection mentioned here is in verse 26. The resurrection of the Lord himself. Our life is derived from him, from his life. His life is the original life. He is the source of life. Remember chapter 1 verse 4 says, in him was life and here, and as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Everything that you see or that you can't even see in the vastness of the universe that God has created from billions and billions of light years and separation, everything has its source in God himself. He is the one who lays down his life and takes it up again. We're going to look at that in chapter 10. 
And it is because he has life in himself that he can share that life with all who trust in him and give it to whoever he chooses. He is the source of life. Scientists are still grappling with the issue with the the origins of life. The Bible tells us about the source of life and it is God himself. And they're still looking for it. Just this week, they found uh, an underground ocean or whatever in Mars. And that just tells them that they're, uh, they're just hoping against all hope that there has to be life out there because we cannot explain the source of life on Earth. It has to have come from out there somewhere. The Bible tells us. He is the source of all of life. Now, in verses 28 to 29 is the resurrection of life. The resurrection of life. This is when believers are raised from the dead after they have died. This is what it says. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. And come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. This is a passage that is further explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it is also the passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we read at the beginning of our service this morning. Death is not the end for the believer. The resurrection of life will take place when Jesus returns and calls his people to himself. And lastly, the resurrection of condemnation. This is the sobering note. Verse 29. This is the resurrection which involves the lost and it will take place before Jesus ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. Those who, it says here, those who have done what is evil, will rise to be condemned. How? How does this happen? Well, the, the, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, verse 22, and given authority to execute the judgment, in verse 27. Bottom line is that while today Jesus Christ is Saviour, today Jesus Christ is as Saviour, one day he shall sit as the judge. It is your choice. Who do you want to face? The Saviour or the Judge? At times I hear people talk about Jesus, admiring him as a great moral teacher. Things like, and they say things like, oh, I just love some of the things that he said, you know, things like, don't judge, or love your neighbour as yourself, I just love that, or sell whatever you have and give to the poor, oh, that's wonderful. This is the start of socialism, you know, it's just wonderful. But don't, 
please don't talk to me about all the miracles and the supernatural stuff and, and all of that because those parts of the Bible I just don't like. Please don't tell me about the God judging the living and the dead. He's more than just a good man and a wise man. He's God. D.M. Stearns was preaching in Philadelphia at the close of a service. A stranger came up to him and, uh, and said, I don't like the way you spoke about the cross. I think that instead of emphasising the death of Christ, it would be far better to preach Jesus, the teacher and example. Stearns replied, If I presented Christ in that way, would you be willing to follow him? I certainly would, said the stranger without hesitation. All right then, said the the preacher, let's take the first step. He did no sin. Can you claim that for yourself? And the man looked confused and somewhat surprised and he says, why no, he said, I acknowledge that I do sin. And Stearns replied, then your greatest need is to have a saviour, not an example. It is very clear from our text that Jesus is who he claims to be. It is also very clear that the Jewish authorities took seriously who Jesus claimed to be. What about us? What about us? Have we answered these two important questions? The first one is, is Jesus right about who he claims to be? And the second, which relies on the first, if he is right, what have you done about it? What have you done about it? These are possibly the most important questions that any human being will ever face. I hope and pray that all of us have answered these questions in the affirmative. Yes, yes, Jesus is who he claims to be and yes, I have surrendered, I have believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. But if there is anybody here this morning who is still, is still struggling with that issue, with that question, and still haven't sorted it out in their minds, you need to work on this. And if the Holy Spirit has been working in your life, even this morning, I pray, I hope and pray that you will surrender your life to him, full of faith and saying, yes, Lord, I believe who you say you are. And for those of us who have already answered these questions in the affirmative, it's now about following his example, isn't it? Once we've got that locked in, our life has to show that we are indeed Christians, that we are indeed following the way that he showed us to live. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before you, we acknowledge your holiness. We acknowledge 
your Lordship. We acknowledge you as the source of all life. We acknowledge you, Lord, as Lord and Saviour and the judge of this world. Thank you for speaking to our hearts, for awakening us from death to life, that our spirits have answered the call and that, Lord, we belong to you, to no one else. I pray, Lord, for those who have yet to answer this question, to surrender their lives, Lord, to you by believing in you and all that you've done, that you may, Lord, quicken their hearts, quicken their, their dead lives, Lord, so that they may live for eternity because only you can raise the dead. And may we live lives, Lord, worthy of the gospel you have called us. Eternity is waiting, but until that day, Lord, may we continue to shine your light in our dark world. I pray, Lord, for those who have yet to surrender that you may speak to them even now. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.